Chapter Three of Clouds Cover the Campus by Daniel A. Lord S. J. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Three. The local police took over with all the secret quiet and calm of a fleet of Model T Fords arriving outside a sleeping dormitory. You never saw so much activity with so few results. We were taken down to headquarters as witnesses and quizzed in a manner that was in vogue when Nick Carter was in his prime, and they asked us so many questions that they had to ask most of them three or four times. Plainly they were acting on the supposition that we were all guilty. In fact, you'd think it was a mass murder with one man murdered and the rest of us, Nils, Charlie, and myself, the mass. Still, it was almost fun. If I'd been guilty, I should probably have preferred not to have my face all over the newspapers. Criminals are notably camera-shy. Me, I just loved myself on the front page, especially since the reporters couldn't say any more than I was the one who discovered the victim. But Nils resented the whole performance furiously. A lot of village mutts playing Belgian police dogs and bloodhounds, he jeered, when we were walking home from one of the grillings. And the reporters who came flocking in from all the big newspapers were worse. They even found, swiped is the more correct word, a picture of me in a swimming suit, and ran it with the subtitle, Fines Bombsite Victim. I'll bet the readers thought I dived for him. The university buried old Short Circuit. Sorry, but the dear, familiar name slipped out, with great pomp. He raided it, and we all shed real tears. The magnificent chapel of Rockledge was jammed to the clear story. It's a great building, that chapel, big as a circus tent and empty as the stadium in midwinter. Every line in the building called for something up there where there wasn't an altar, but the architects went right ahead and made it gothic, a church without anyone living in it. Julia May let me stay with her through the funeral. I know we both wished there could be a requiem mass for the old fellow, but since there couldn't be, I was glad that a great scientist like Milligan was there to speak his praise, and the U.S. government sent a detachment of Marines to accompany him to the grave. That was a sort of wistful honor to the smash bomb site. Soon the campus resumed its normal life. The aviators taught the collegians how to fly. For a matter of five days, nobody crashed. Morin began to look less like somebody whose favorite son had just run off with a gun mole and the contents of the First National Bank. And I began to wonder what in blazes was the matter with a country where a big man like Eisenberg can get popped off, the government lose a bomb site they've been standing on tiptoe to get, and not a step be taken. Was I fooled? How in thunder would anybody, I ask you, suspect that the little bespeckled, lawyerish-looking chap, he might have been your instructor in biology, or Dr. Milquitoast himself, and the tall, gangling stranger that hung around the varsity dumps, the campus cozy corner, for one, paging through the picture magazines and drinking cokes, were men from the FBI. I know I was fooled. But when they fooled Sidney Weiss, they must be smart." In fact, the first I knew that they were something more than unoffending bystanders was one day when Nils and I were puttering away in the little auxiliary lab near Short Circuit's place, and a knock fairly cracked the door. I yelled, Come in, absently, and the little bespeckled chap and the gangling guy walked in. Without any invitation from us, they sat down, swayed their chairs against the wall, and opened fire. And boy, oh boy, with a withering barrage they laid down, in voices that you had to strain to hear, and did strain to hear once they started, 
They raked nails in me, until we really began to think we had committed the murder, maybe in a fit of amnesia, or perhaps just to raise money to lift the family mortgage. The bespeckled fellow, whose name was Green, we never did find out whether he had a first name, so we called him Paris for short, sat there and told me the story of my life until I knew I didn't like my life one bit. It was almost like a priest in a confessional starting to tell you what you'd done, and knowing what you'd done heap sight more clearly than you knew. He even found out that the preceding summer I'd borrowed five hundred dollars to buy a second-hand car, cracked the thing up, left it in a nice cool ditch, and failed to let Dad know what happened. He knew how many letters I received from the finance company, and just how much money I still owed, which is plenty. All the time, the gangling guy, whose name, ironically, was Shorty, something or other, chewed gum, ate mints and slow noisy crunches, and chain-smoked cigarettes. Once in a while he asked a question that sounded as innocent as, Nice day, isn't it? And that proved to be a time bomb. Then they turned to Nils. You don't have to be a psychologist to know that after the performance they had put me through, Nils was as nervous as a man making his first high dive. They asked him his name, his age, his height, his favorite color, and normal diet. Well, almost. And then... You registered in the university records as a Dane, said Paris Green. Nils nodded. That would make you a Dane, said Green, superfluously. And I wondered what kind of a fool he was. Nils nodded again. Except for the fact that you were born in Berlin, that your mother and father were both native-born Germans, whose parents had come to Germany from Denmark ten or twelve years before either of your parents were born, and that your father was a Prussian artillery officer in the late World War, continued Green in the same flat voice that was all ice and flowing nitroglycerin. I thought Nils was going to faint. I know that I almost gasped in surprise. I had always regarded the young fellow with whom I worked as some sort of Scandinavian. In here all the time he was a German, a German working around old short circuit's bomb site. Nils talked fast, and I must confess his story sounded convincing. Green was right. He was a German, but he had taken out Danish citizenship papers, first papers only, after his father had died, and Nils and his mother learned from the Gestapo that his mother had non-Aryan blood in her veins. Some enemy reported it, he said, and there was a sob in his voice, but that was enough. We were hustled out of our house in the middle of the night and taken to the border. My mother had been sick, bad heart, nervous condition following my father's death. We got into Denmark, dumped there by the police. We didn't have a cent to our name. I did the best I could for her. She died. I wanted to be a Danish citizen. I started to be. And then, because Germany was too close to Denmark, and I was afraid, I came to this country. He turned fiercely to the FBI men, who sat like a pair of frozen turtles gazing into an empty pond. Do you think I had much reason to love Germany? Should I have been otherwise than glad when I met Eisenberg and had a chance to work with him on a bomb site that might someday revenge my mother? I'm neither a detective nor a psychologist, but the speech rang all the bells with me. And though I'm slow in some things, I didn't miss the flicker that passed between the two FBI men. You couldn't tell me that they weren't impressed, too. Shorty uncoiled his six feet three and walked down the hall. Presently he returned with Charlie, looking more the hunchback than had Charles Lawton himself. Green gazed up at us through his glasses. I was beginning to think they were as useless as the famous ones of Harold Lloyd, 
and motioned him to a wooden laboratory chair. Now about the death of your cousin, said Green, and I know I came up a few feet out of my chair. Old Charlie didn't even look surprised. He looked as if a sagging mass of plaster in the ceiling that he had long expected to fall had crashed on top of him. Why didn't you tell anybody you two were cousins? Charlie looked pathetically dumb. Why should I? I am the janitor, he the great professor. He wanted to tell. I preferred it this way. Green didn't even bother to answer, but you knew in a glance that he didn't believe the story. Whose was the woman's voice in the laboratory that night? Charlie's answer was swift and over-emphatic. There was no woman's voice. Green continued unperturbed. But if there had been a woman's voice, it would naturally have been Mrs. Eisenberg's, wouldn't it? Charlie shook his big head in stupid denial. Green lit a cigarette. Too bad that Mrs. Eisenberg doesn't like her relatives, isn't it? I should think the professor would have hated keeping the relationship between you quiet, just because of a woman's desire to be socially important on the campus. So that was it. I didn't for a moment put it past the good Mitzi. She was a climber, if one ever lived. And if she had happened to have a janitor for a relative, kin by blood and kin through marriage, she was more than likely to keep it a secret and force her husband into the contemptible conspiracy. Charlie said nothing. He didn't have to. I felt both my admiration and dislike for Green growing to gigantic proportions. At that, he had still another shot to fire. Especially when you were the one who told the professor of the vacancy in Rockledge. Darn decent of you to find a job for an exiled relative. Darn indecent of her to refuse to let you be properly thanked. For a moment I thought that Charlie was going to talk. You could see that he wanted to defend the dead professor, and that he would be glad enough to hit out at the unfair affair Mitzi. Then his big, loose mouth closed slowly. You found the professor. At what time did you say? This to me. I gave the time of my arrival with Dick and Harry. He turned to Charlie. And you talked to him through the door. When? Charlie gave the time of our disguised conversation, fully an hour earlier. Green lifted languid eyes to Shorty, who was hidden behind a cloud of cigarette smoke. And the professor had been dead how long, according to the doctor who examined him? Two and a half hours, replied Shorty, through gum, cigarette, and mint candy. Which means, you see, Green said it as if it were really very important that you talked to him approximately half an hour after he was dead. He rose, and so did Shorty. It takes no detective story detective to discover that the professor was more than likely killed by someone who knew him. He let that someone in. They talked face to face, for the blow was delivered on his face. The professor knew him and evidently wasn't afraid of him. He looked sleepily at Charlie. Why didn't you rush to him the minute you heard the crash? To anyone but a student, Charlie's answer might have sounded sheerest nonsense. I thought, he said, that it was just one of the professor's experiments. He was a noisy worker, or maybe some students cutting up. Shorty laughed, one short bark, and he and Green were gone. I'll admit that I was physically tired and tired of the whole affair. So when I walked into my disordered room, I was more than ready for bed. Little as I allowed myself to worry... My nerves were taut, and my sorrow for Eisenberg and my worry about Julia May were wearing me down. So I snapped on the light and made a quick, reassuring survey of the room. 
Nothing of the systematic disorder was disturbed. The room was the same old human junk shop that I loved. I left the ancient dishes on the table and brewed a cup of coffee. I poured the coffee into a fresh cup, drank it, got out of my clothes, and lay down wearily on my bed. Quickly, without sensation, I fell into a deep sleep. Then, how was I to know when, I started to dream. Or was it a dream? I couldn't be sure. I just knew that there was someone in the room, and that I was struggling to wake up and see who it was. I had an awful feeling of fighting to recover consciousness, of hearing footsteps, not too careful or too noiseless, but footsteps that were swiftly and persistently and skillfully moving about my room. I had the sensation of light in my eyes, and then of the lights disappearing, and there seemed to be a strange smell in the room. Then I fell swiftly and sickeningly, and then blackness. When I awoke, the sun was fully up, and I had a headache so terrible that as I moved my head on my pillow, I groaned and closed my eyes again in an effort to shut out light and the blinding flash of pain. Tentatively, I moved my right hand up to touch my forehead. There was a welt there, long and painful. I felt choked and sickened, and my fingers touched a damp cloth, loosely wrapped around my nose and mouth. I managed with weak, uncertain fingers to get it off, and I held it up to look at it, not caring or daring to move my head. Chloroform, ether, one or the other. Somebody had welded me with a swift and skillful blow, and then covered my face with a chloroform cloth, while... For a long and painful minute, I didn't care what that somebody had done or why. I just lay there with my eyes closed and my left hand motionless on the bedspread. Numb as my hand was, I knew there was some foreign object in it, and when I brought my hand up close to my face and opened it, something bright, identical with the other bright thing I had found in the professor's laboratory fell out. Then I was up in a hurry, pain or no pain. I slipped the thing into my pocket of my pajamas and stuffed on top of it a handkerchief. I wondered if there was a better hiding place in the world than a man's pajama pocket. Who'd ever think of looking there? No, there was. I hoped, a still better hiding place. I managed to stagger across the room. What a mess it was. Whoever had hit me and administered the anesthetic had taken time to do a magnificently thorough job. Every drawer of my bureau was emptied. My clothes, such as they are, were all out of my closet, and even a glance showed me that all the pockets had been turned inside out and linings ripped and torn. My books were all over the floor, the pages clearly having been ruffled before the books were flung aside and my little cabinet of prize physics instruments in the corner was a curiosity shop after a minor earthquake. No doubt about it, the somebody had come for something very definite, and I knew what it was. In the center of my breakfast table lay the envelope I had picked up in the professor's laboratory. Now it was empty. The thief evidently believed that he had the code plans for the gun site. I grinned to myself, wondering how long it would take him to realize that what he had stolen was really Julia May's letter to me, and that she really meant that she'd accept my proffer of a date, and that, I love you, really signified, I love you, and not a formula for some accurate optical lens. I stood hesitantly for a moment over the soiled breakfast dishes. Would they bother with a college man's disorderly housekeeping? I wondered. But the minute I picked up a cup half full of stale gray-brown coffee, I knew that I had not been outsmarted. It was heavier than a coffee cup should be. I poured the stale coffee into the wash basin, 
and there in the bottom of the cup lay the small, precious, utterly essential eyepiece of the bomb site. It really didn't matter much where I put it now. Whoever searched my room will be sure now that I didn't have it, at least not in my room. So I grinned, even through my pain, as I threw the eyepiece into my tie box, which had been tossed about until the ties looked like a tangle of live eels, and I crawled back into bed. Dick and Harry met me in the campus cozy corner for lunch. The FBI men had done a little talking with them, too, and had made on them the same profound impression that they had made on me. Even a pair that had as little to do with the whole thing, as Dick and Harry did, felt a little nervous when Paris Green turned on the poison talk. We took the booth nearest the window, Dick and I where we could look out, Harry with his back to the street. Traffic was heavy for our small town. In fact, on the one narrow street of our small town, traffic is always heavy. I saw Morin's fine car roll by, Morin sitting stone-faced and alert in the rear, his swarthy chauffeur guiding the powerful car among collegiate jalopies and tracks of farmers from the nearby farms. With Morin sat our old friend Paris Green, looking as absent-minded and scholarly and as harmless as ever. I mentioned their passing. Harry furnished the footnote. Morin, he said, is bringing the FBI men officially to the field. Of course, they'd been snooping around, but nobody knew who they were, and I'll bet that unofficially they picked up a lot that's important. Now they're going to open the investigation of the crash deaths, and I'm darn glad. Maybe you think it's fun going up in a plane with the feeling that you may be the next one. We didn't have to comment on the well-known fact that one-fourth of the student corps had already withdrawn from training. Family pressure, the tears of frightened mothers, the newspaper uproar, and plain nervous fright. Who could blame them? For it's bad enough that youth has to die in the air when they're fighting for the defense of their country. It's a hopeless waste when they die before the enemy has even declared open war. Dick looked at my still-welded forehead thoughtfully. I had given them a rapid sketch of the events of the night, as far as I knew them. I made no comment, however, on the eyepiece or the stolen letter. That was my secret. But Dick was doing some private thinking. Who's Mitzi Eisenberg's foreign friend? He asked. I told him what little I knew, and added that Julia May didn't like him, and that in the role of sympathetic friend, he was hanging around the dead professor's house much too much. You calling on Julia May tonight? He asked. I nodded. I've been dropping over with more than ordinary regularity since her uncle's death. Quite aside from the fact that I felt she might need and want me a little, I was glad of an excuse for a bit of extra time with Julia May. I'll drop in too, he said. Let me keep my little surprise till then. I'd rather have your normal and undramatic reaction. Nothing startling, but it may be a clue. Julia May was waiting for me. We stood on the porch and talked. Inside, Mitzi was entertaining, or being consoled by her foreign friend. I liked him about the way you'd like a rattler curled on your sofa cushions, and I liked least the fact that he was so much in the house with Julia May. But I kept her mind off the subject and made her show me, as we sat in the porch swing under the porch light, some of the letters and telegrams that had poured in from her uncle's scientific confreres who heard of his death. Mrs. Eisenberg had been only too willing to let her open them and answer them. The good Mrs. Eisenberg hadn't an overdose of heart, that was sure. Then Dick's incredible car drove up to the door, and he and Harry piled out with a cheerful hail that might easily have attracted the attention of a ship two miles out at sea. 
We sat briefly on the porch, chinning, until Dick suggested that we go in and see Mitzi. So in we went, and Mitzi turned on the personality smile, and the foreign friend clicked his heels, and we all got the feeling that we were kids being received by the Baron and the Baroness in their ancestral salon. Mitzi was sweet and motherly and aloof. Elwell was all that a foreign diplomat might be to intruders he could not forcibly eject. That was the domestic picture, until Dick dropped his bomb. He did it without a sign of knowing what he was about to cause by way of major explosion. I was proud of Dick's acting ability. For myself, I nearly swallowed my soft palate. I saw your car late last night, or rather, early this morning, he said to Mitzi. I almost hailed you, but I was going fast, and so were you, so that would have been a wasted gesture. Mitzi turned and stood paralyzed. The foreign friend sat as if carved out of fresh limestone. You drive well, sir, continued Dick, looking straight at him. We nearly locked mudguards, but you cut fast, and I'm grateful for it. Mitzi managed to smile. I didn't notice you, she said. No, said Dick. I'd been up in Field Hall, playing contract with some of the boys. They're loons for contract, and I was all hours before we got away. When I left them, it was terribly late. Just as I came near Tom's dorm, your car cut out. Mitzi shot a terrified look at Julia May. We'd been dancing, she said. Dancing? There was horror in Julia May's voice. Mitzi's husband not dead a week, and Mitzi explaining her early morning hours by saying that she'd been dancing. Elwell cut in. It was my idea. I felt that she was so tired, so nervous, so distraught, that it would be a rest for her to take the evening off. So I took her driving, and then I begged her to stop at the white coach and dance a bit. She didn't want to. Oh, no, I didn't, she protested. It was bad taste on my part, but blame me, not her. Julia May was blaming her with a hurt look, right enough. I thought for a moment of Hamlet and wondered if Julia May wasn't looking at Mitzi, as Hamlet might have looked at the Queen Mother. But Dick wasn't blaming Mitzi for dancing. In fact, one swift look at his barometric face, and I knew he didn't believe she'd been dancing. To his mind she was, likely as not, the mole who had driven an important car for the somebody, or somebodies, who had bashed me over the head, and gone through my room with a thoroughly vigorous, if ineffective, comb. Anyhow, that put the evening on the rocks, so the three of us fellows piled Julia May into Dick's car, drove her around until she got the cry out of her system onto my more-than-willing shoulder, took her back to the house, now dark except for a faint nightlight in Mitzi's bedroom, and then turned back to my room. Dick and Harry threw themselves into more or less comfortable chairs, while I, with that instinctive gesture by which a person moves towards a radio in a quiet room, walked over, flicked the switch, and stood playing with the dial. A dull commercial was on, and my fingers automatically turned the dial. Who cared for soap or soup or the glories of some cough syrup at a time like this? With ghoulish delight, I began to manipulate the outer dial and picked up police calls. They sounded almost trivial compared with the crimes that surrounded and involved us. A drunk, a domestic quarrel, a street fight. Then I did something I shall never be able to explain, unless it was once more instinct and providence combining to play a part. For mine was a very special radio. I had made it myself under the direction of old Short Circuit, and high above the normal shortwave reception, 
I had built in a special short wave that we ourselves used to use. As far as I knew, no one had ever developed so high a reception as that. Short Circuit was tremendously proud of it and swore me to complete secrecy. On it he could talk with me, though I could not answer him. His advantage, for the old gentleman didn't like people to answer him back. Anyhow, as far as I knew, no one else could reach me on the attenuated wavelength. So in view of the fact that the professor was dead, I should normally have expected to get nothing with that short, short wave. Yet my thoughtless fingers flicked the switch that threw the reception up into his range, and in that instant I almost went through the machine. For the radio was far from dead. On that machine, which I had thought unique, I was listening to two voices in conversation. Listen, I cried, in what must have sounded like a command, for Dick and Harry were at my elbow in a flash. Whatever the conversation was about, it was beyond us, for it sounded as if one man was talking German and the other Spanish, though both speakers mixed their words so that Spanish-sounding words cut into the German speech, and German gutturals suddenly bumped the flow of the Spanish. I can, since I am a graduate student, read German in a smattering of Spanish, but when a native starts to spout it forth like a rapid-fire gun, it goes past my unreceptive ears, and I knew that Dick and Harry were in the same linguistic boat. Yet we strained to catch anything that might be familiar in what was clearly a report by the man speaking Spanish to the man answering in German. Plains is a word that sounds the same in almost any language, and it's easy to catch numbers in any tongue. They were talking planes, and I caught the Spanish word for one, and then for three, words that were repeated in German, with an approving relish. I caught mananana, which any fool recognizes, but missed the swift words that seemed to be instructions terminating the dialogue. The voice of the Spaniard indicated what was clearly an acceptance of orders, and then I got a start that threw me completely off balance. For, in precisely the voice I had heard speaking over the phone, the night that I listened and played dead in old Short Circuit's laboratory, came the final, short, very German, gut, and the click that meant radios gone dead. The man with the German voice was the same man who had called Eisenberg's lab on that fatal night. I turned off the switch and wandered back to my chair. Dick dialed for the news broadcast, and the three of us sat chewing over what I explained briefly to the others. Then came the voice of the commentator, hot, excited. The American public is in for another jolt tomorrow morning when it wakes to read its morning paper, for once more college aviation has taken its toll. At Central University, one plane crashed, killing the student pilot. At Western, another crashed and killed three. One in three, a total of four dead in one day. This is too much for John Q. Parent and his nervous wife. College aviation is going to be damned as the worst failure in our whole preparedness program. Planes. One. Three. I echoed, almost mechanically. Why, that must have been what the Spaniard was reporting. Brother, said Harry slowly, don't kick the obvious around. Just tell us what we're going to do about it. And how I wished I knew the answer to that. End of chapter 3